you haven't turned there in your Bibles already, you can go ahead and turn to John 17. And follow along with the sermon in, in your Bible as well. Well, recently, Harvard Health Publishing came out with some tips for having comfort food without the guilt. Comfort food without the guilt. Here are some of those tips. Ditch full-fat dairy products like cream and butter and instead use non-fat products. Ditch sugar and syrup and use fruit or sweet vegetables. Ditch white rice and use whole grains. Ditch white flour and use whole grain flours or even grated cauliflower to make pizza dough. Ditch mashed potatoes and try mashed cauliflower instead. I didn't hear any laughs to any of that. Are y'all all on the program? For me, this is not comfort food without the guilt. This is comfort food without the comfort. Are you, that's the definition of comfort food is something sugary sweet or something savory, something that, that you love, that you indulge yourself into because you need some comfort. There is... There is some wisdom in this, actually, the getting comfort food. Uh, the scripture in Proverbs 31, verse 7 says, Give strong drink to the one who's perishing, and wine to the bitter in soul. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. There is a sort of wisdom to receiving the good gifts of God to bring comfort to our lives, to enjoy God's bountiful goodness and what he has provided for us. What is your comfort food when you are facing some trial or some difficulty? I love chocolate brownies with caramel in the middle and the temperature has to be that of approximately molten lava <laughs> with a nice cold cup of milk. It just brings comfort to the soul. Well, there is a certain wisdom in this and yet we need to recognize that can only do so much to really bring us the kind of comfort we need. Even in smaller trials or challenges, we, need, we know there's something more that is needed than just food or enjoyment of God's good creation. They bring some relief, but we, as those who are children of the Most High God, have greater resources for comfort in the midst of this difficult world, in the midst of our troubles and pain and sorrow. We have great resources available to us. Resources which won't give us a, a sour stomach or a heartburn afterwards. Researches, resources which will not have a bad aftertaste. Resources which will not only help us in minor difficulties, but in the worst of circumstances. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have the very promises of God. And they will give you great comfort when you are in need. In our passage for this morning, Jesus is comforting his disciples. And he does so by declaring to them the promises of God. Great promises. A promise is a declaration or an assurance that one will do something for the other or that something will surely take place. And since we know that Jesus knows all things, that he knows the beginning from the end, and that his promises are always true, we could say that Jesus comforts them by telling them the truth. Here is how it's going to be. Here's what's going to take place. Trust in me. What he declares, 
He will do, and we can bank on it. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we ask that during this time you would bring comfort to us from these precious promises from the lips of Jesus as we read them in this text. We pray that you would apply them to our own hearts so that we would face difficulties and trials with faith in you. Not with fear, not with despairing, troubled hearts, but with faith in your promises that you will do what you have said. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. First from this text, I want you to see that Jesus cares for his people. He wants to comfort his people. He does not want his people to have troubled hearts. We see this as he speaks to his disciples in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He gives them this, this command. Do not go on with troubled hearts. Do not continue having troubled hearts. Well, why would they be troubled in their hearts and in their minds? Remember what we had seen last time in the last passage. One of you will betray me. And they're confused, wondering which one will it be, even when Jesus gives them a sort of sign they don't understand. Perhaps in their minds, is still, they're still wondering, who will betray Jesus? Why would they do such a thing? On top of that, you have Jesus who is leaving his disciples. He tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. Later you will come, but right now you cannot come with me. And on top of that, he tells Peter, will you really die for me? No, in fact, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. They have a lot to be troubled about, it seems. The one that they had followed for these years would be leaving them, and they would be left alone. He commands them not only to let your hearts be troubled, but the flip side of that, he gives them a positive command. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Believe in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. There's some confusion. Maybe your text, your, your versions of the Bible reflect this. Is this just, are these statements that Jesus is saying? You believe in God, you believe also in me. Or is he giving them a command? Believe in God, believe also in me. And I think it's a, a command. It naturally flows, first of all, from the negative command. He gives the negative command, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he gives the positive command aspect of the command, to believe in God and believe also in me. And yet also, in addition, it makes sense from the argument to follow. As we're going to see, Jesus goes on to tell them why they should believe in him, why they can trust in him, why they can bank on him. And we should see here the compassionate and caring heart of Jesus for his people. He wants his disciples, those who follow him, those who trust in him. You, in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your sorrows, he wants you to be comforted. He cares for you. Recently in the news, there was the story of a, a young man, a teenager, who was beaten and killed by a, a group of his enemies. And there were many, many people standing around watching, even some of them videoing as he was beaten. And you have to wonder, well, what was going on with that? Did they simply lack the compassion to do anything? Did they just look on and, and not have a care for this young man as he was beaten? Well, perhaps also they felt an inability to do anything. 
They knew that, that if they got involved, that they would perhaps be beaten as well. Maybe there was a fear of not maybe having, having compassion, but not knowing what to do or how to make any impact. Well, brothers and sisters, we should be reminded that Jesus not only has a sympathy for us, a concern for us, his children, a, a care for us, but he is intent to do something about it at the risk of his own life. He cares for you. He cares for his people. And he is willing and able to do something about it. What will he do about it? The answer is found in the next few verses. Verses 2 through 7. Jesus not only wants to comfort his people, he provides for the comfort of his people. He gives them those two commands. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And then he gives them reasons for faith, reasons why they should trust in him. He, he gives them promises which will strengthen their hearts, which will, which will sustain them and, and build them up. That is, if they receive them in faith. And what he says is true, but there is, there is an aspect in which for his disciples to be comforted, they need to receive these promises for what they are, the very truth of God. This is, how the promise, these, this is how the promises of God works for you and your comfort as well. They are to be, to be met with a response of faith, open hands receiving and believing these promises that are made. This is, this is the cure for the anxious heart. This is the cure for the troubled heart receiving by faith the promises of God. Well, what promises do we find in this passage? Notice a few of these promises. First, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. He's speaking of abundant provision in heaven with his heavenly Father forever. In his own home, a part of the household, a part of a family of God. The Father himself receives you into his home. And there's plenty of room for any and all who will come to him in faith. Not only are there many rooms in the Father's house, room for everyone, he promises to the disciples, to those who follow him, I am going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Have you ever heard this promise and just wondered at it what is he talking about preparing a place for me you might imagine jesus uh, putting on the fitted sheets and making the beds what is he doing preparing a place for me what does that even mean i think it's right that we view jesus's departure and all these instances when he's talking about going away what is he talking about He's talking ultimately about his own suffering, his death, his being lifted up on the cross for, uh, as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his people, his uh, descending to the dead in the grave, and then his exalted resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. Jesus, by his work in suffering, death, and resurrection, is preparing a place for us. You could almost say Jesus is preparing us for a place because we, in and of ourselves, we are not fit for heaven. How could we who are sinful, turned in on ourselves, selfish, 
not loving our neighbors as we ought to, how can we be fit for heaven, this glorious place where there is no sin, where there is only that which is righteousness and goodness and faithfulness. We are not for, fit for heaven in, our, in and of ourselves. Friends, have you realized about this, this about yourself? Typically, we, we can think about justification by living. We think we're justified by living. And then I die, and you go to my funeral, and they talk about how I, I died, and I lived a good life, and now just it's a natural thing. I go to heaven. It's, I go to heaven because I lived, and then I died, and then the natural next thing is you go to heaven. Justification by life, or justification by death, or justification by works. And this is, this is not true, brothers and sisters. We, in and of ourselves, are totally depraved. We are without hope. We are dead in our sins by nature, and we need to be justified by His grace. We need to be fit for heaven. We need to be prepared for heaven, and this is what Jesus Christ does in His suffering and death for us. He fits us for heaven. In this way, He swings open the gates of heaven and says, any and all who come, you come, but you must come through me. Preparing a place for us. And this is a wonderful promise to us. And he goes on. I will come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. That's what they desire. They desire to be with Jesus. He promises to come again. And we might wonder at this promise as well. well what is he speaking of that he will come again and take us to himself. Well, there is the truth that to depart from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? When we die, because of what the Scripture teaches, we believe that our spirit departs and, and is, goes to be with Jesus in, in Jesus' presence here and now, like immediately. We are with Jesus. And yet, we are waiting for the full consummation of our salvation because our body is still in the grave. And I think this is speaking of that last day when Jesus returns and takes all of who we are back to himself. Glorified body, our spirit are reunited, and we will be with him always in this place he has prepared for us. Thomas responds in confusion. We don't know where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? With Jesus' words, he answers both of these questions. Notice, notice that in verse, verses 6 and 7. Jesus is answering Philip's question, where are you going and what is the way? We, we don't know how to get there. So Jesus answers where he's going. He's going to the Father in heaven, to this place I am preparing for you. And the way to get there is through Jesus himself. He is the way to the Father. And he is the way to the Father because he is the only truth of the Father. He is the true revelation of who God is. He has explained who the Father is. He is the truth in that he is perfect righteousness in human form. He is the way because He is the truth, and He is the way because He is the life, that which is truly life, and that which He is able to freely give to others. 
I don't know if you, you've heard the news, but Lindsay O'Dell, our brother, church member, his mother died early this morning. And so we, we want to remember them in prayer and lift them up and send comforting words to them. And when I learned the news, I immediately thought of when Jesus speaks in John chapter 11, before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, I tell you the truth, those who believe in me, even though they die, they will not die. They will live forever. And I tried to comfort Lindsay and say, she trusted in Christ, though she dies, she does not die. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So that not even death, in all of its horror, in all of its fear, in all of its mystery, it cannot touch those who find their hope and their joy and their faith in Jesus Christ. It cannot touch you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ. He is the life. The theologian Thomas Akempis said this of this passage, speaking uh, for Jesus in a sense. He says, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. If anyone will find themselves with the Father in heaven, it will only be through faith in this one, this God-man, this God-become-flesh, Jesus Christ. It will be through Him. And the promises of God, these promises are cures for the troubled heart. They, they are the cure for these disciples who are troubled in heart and in mind. And they are promises which will bring comfort to you in the midst of your difficulties. Well, friends, how do you comfort yourselves? Is it merely with comfort food or distraction? Is that going to be enough in your time of trouble? And how do you comfort your brothers and sisters? How do you comfort others? And by all means, you should bring them comfort food. <laughs> bring food to their house. Sit with them in their sorrow. We rejoice with one another. We mourn with one another. And yet also do not neglect the greater resources you have in the promises of God to bring comfort to your brothers and sisters. It can be awkward to speak a word from the Scripture. Our, in our culture, we're not used to that sort of thing. It can be, it can be a challenge, a, a hurdle to get over for you in the midst of someone's suffering. But I promise you, it will be worth it. It will be worth it for them, and it will be worth it for you. Let us comfort one another by the precious promises of God. If you don't know how to do that, well, consider if someone, if you learn about a, a trial someone else is going through, try to think to yourself, what would be comforting to me if I were in that situation? Like, what scripture passage, what promise of God, what would be comforting to me in that situation? And then you can use that. 
Send them a quick text or a handwritten note. Give them a phone call and just tell them you were thinking of them. If you still are struggling to know how to do it, just pick something. Pick any promise of God. Pick something from the Scripture where God is making known to us what is the case, what is true, what will be the case, what He will do, and it will bring comfort to your friend's heart. Well, the reason Jesus can provide this comfort to us is because he himself is God. That's what we see in verses 8 through 11. The reason he can provide, he can do something about this and give comfort to his disciples and to his people is, is because he and the Father are one. I love how Jesus <clears throat> responds to Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus Almost in exasperation. Have you known me so long and you don't know me? You've seen me, and therefore you have seen the Father. You have known me, and therefore you know the Father. This, this is a very high Christology, the deity of Christ on full display. To see Jesus is to see God. That is amazing. That is mind-blowing. He has the same authority of the Father. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. We are, we are in unison. We are unity together, working together for the redemption of our people. The reason he's able to provide for the comfort of his people is because of his unique relationship to the Father. He's not just a man who shows the way we should follow, giving us an example, blazing a trail. He is the way. He is one with the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Him is to see the Father. To trust in Him is to trust in the Father. And this is why He can bring comfort. Well, you might, you might wonder then, well, we haven't seen Jesus personally. We, his disciples saw Jesus, so they were able to see the Father. Does this apply equally to us? Because we haven't seen the physical form of Jesus. Does that mean we haven't seen the Father, that we can't see the Father? That we're ignorant of who He is or what He's like? You've probably seen some, in the news some reconstructions about probabilities of what Jesus would look like. He's not you know, a fair-skinned uh, American man with long, flowing hair. Right? He would look like a man of the times. He would look have a, perhaps a darker complexion. They, they came out with a picture of what Jesus may have looked like, and of course that's not what Jesus looked like. And yet, we're, we begin to think in these physical terms. We haven't seen Jesus, so can we see the Father? And yet, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, Luke, and John, throughout the Old Testament, we see who Jesus is. We see the character of Christ. We see the heart of Christ. We see all that he is and Jesus Christ is an explanation of who the Father is. It is not in his physical form that we see the Father. It is in his character. It is in his words. It is in his deeds. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have seen Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, you have seen Jesus and you have seen the face of God in who Jesus is for us. Just consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We looked at this. Uh, last week, I believe, 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, And we all with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are beholding, we are seeing the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ as we see his character proclaimed through his word. Also in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to Corinthians who presumably haven't seen the physical form of Jesus. And he says, you're seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You are seeing Jesus and you are seeing the Father. You are seeing the face of God in who he is. So we behold the faith of, face of Christ, we behold who Jesus is by, by meditating on the word proclaimed to us, the revelation which has been given to us concerning the character of who he is. We see his face. And brothers and sisters, we live in a busy society, and yet you cannot meditate and be busy at the same time. I'm overstating that, but I'm doing it for a purpose. In other words, you need time to see Jesus' face in the revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures. You need time to, to be quiet and to be still and to meditate on Christ's Word and His character found in the Word. This is, as we've said before, how Christ is shaping us, how He's molding us into His own image as we delight in meditation on who He is. Because Jesus and the Father are one, he can provide for the comfort of his people. And yet, lastly, I want you to notice in verses 12 through 14 that Jesus provides not only comfort by these promises, but also his spirit that we might do even greater works. Jesus promises that because he is going to the Father, notice that in the text, because I'm going to the Father, those who believe in me will do greater works. Works. You'll do these works and even greater works because I'm going to the Father. This, he says in anticipation of the next paragraph and then later on even more when he speaks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, this helper who will come and empower his people, his followers, to do the works of God. The Spirit himself, as Jesus is lifted up in, in, in uh, crucifixion, and then in resurrection and ascension, he pours out gifts. He pours out his spirit upon his people. He will empower the works of Jesus' disciples, even as Jesus continues to work himself. This is how Jesus is still active, even though he is in the heavens. He is working and doing through his spirit in his people for the glory of the Father in the Son. But what does he mean that he, they will do greater works than Jesus? Will they feed 10,000, 20,000 people from just a few loaves and fish? Will they raise from the dead dozens and dozens of people so that they'll do greater works? What does he mean, greater works? <clears throat> to this, I would say a few things. One one, it would be quantity in, in this in particular, that, this, that, that the works of his followers, his disciples, would not be relegated to Israel and the surrounding areas. 
This is an expansive type of work that the Spirit is doing through the people of God. They will, they will go out. Uh, they will spread out to Spain, and they will spread out to China. They will spread out to the Americas. They, they will be going forward, empowered by His Spirit, to do greater works for His glory. Expansion to the Gentiles as the gospel is proclaimed. But also the quality of the works. As one commentator says, the deeds of the risen and exalted Christ working by his spirit through believers will be the works of salvation. Bringing men and women and children to faith in Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is still acting actively working he says if you ask anything in my name i will do it i will do it and considering this we ought to to see first that jesus is the one ultimately working through his spirit jesus is not just absent and not doing anything we don't serve a a deistic god who just wound things up the cosmic earth, and then just set it out and left it to itself. God is still working through His Spirit in our world today. And in answer to the prayers of His people, Jesus is working through His Spirit. But notice also, another application would be that we are given these promises, His disciples and we are given these promises, these comforts, not simply to be comforted. We could say not to be comfortable. Right? We're comforted, but not to be comfortable. Not simply waiting for Jesus to come back and to take us home. These are great promises, yes, but there are also great works left to be done. Fuel was meant to be burned. So you don't pour gallons of fuel into uh, a Mustang and just let it sit there. For years and years and years. It'll go bad. It won't function properly. You, you want to rev that thing up. And you want to burn that gas. You want to go somewhere. And the great promises of God are fuel for great works of God's people. It, we weren't given these promises for, to be comfortable. But to work heartily for one another. For the glory of the Lord. That great things would take place. And when I say great works, don't just think big. Now that, that could be a part of it, but don't just think big. Think great in the sense of bringing glory to the Father in the Son. So mother, as you raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, fighting for patience, fighting for faith, fighting to teach them of Christ, you are doing a great work. And teachers, as you are able to share mercy to your students and kindness to them and sacrifice of your own time and, and give words of encouragement and even at times speak of Christ to parents and to little ones. You are doing great works for the Father who is in heaven, gl receiving glory in the Son. What great work could you do this week, empowered by the Spirit, prayerfully, humbly, knowing it's, it's all God doing it in you, but a great work which brings glory to the Father in the Son. You may wonder why your prayers aren't being answered like you think they should be. Maybe take a step back and consider your prayers. He qualifies the prayers that 
He will answer, I will do, in His name, for the glory of the Father and the Son. Is this how you're making your prayers, that Jesus Christ would be exalted? Are you making grand, glorious prayers for your own benefit or for the glory of God? William Carey was known as the father of modern missions, an English pastor who I think had these, these promises in mind, these ideas in mind when he decided that he needed to go overseas and share the gospel with people who have never heard before. Many didn't want to do that. Many were resistant to that. And yet he, he pushed hard. He, he pursued it, and he ended up going and spending his life for the sake of the gospel in India. And he said this, it's often quoted, you've probably heard it before. He says, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And I think this is what these promises encourage us to do. We, we know that all of the work that is done comes from Him and His grace. And we should be expectant. Jesus says, greater works will you do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Expect great things for God and then in the Spirit, by His grace, attempt great things for His glory. I'm sure once we close, we'll ask one another, what do you got going on this week? What if we reframed that in our minds and thought about, what am I doing this week for the glory of the Father and the Son? Let's pray together.